Good morning, everyone. It is Monday morning, and I will start off with a couple life updates. So I am just coming back from a weekend in Southern California where I spent with my brother. Did you hear that? That was Titus. I think he wants attention, but I'm not going to give it to him, so he might meow some more. <laughs> Anyways, the weekend was super fun. I originally did not want to go down because coming into the weekend, I was stressed about the test, stressed about finances, and all sorts of unknown, plus my cat Paula was being annoying, which is why the weekend ended up being exactly what I needed. Time away, it was nice to catch up with my brother. We talked more in depth about things that I've been thinking about, PTSD, <laughs> and I got to ask him more questions about his relationship with his girlfriend, which was nice for me because it put me at ease because I definitely have my apprehensions about her, but after asking him all the questions that I did, I feel like I can let my guard down and just be accepting of her into his life because one thing is for sure, she makes him happy, and that's all that matters. Ooh, another thing, I was listening to a lot of admissions podcasts, so not talking about the LSAT, I was taking a little break from it, but podcasts on how to write your application, your essays, how to string together a cohesive narrative throughout your entire application like components. And I think I have a really good idea of what I'm going to write in my statement. It'll just be a draft, of course, and I'll still have a lot of other topic renditions, but I have a good idea that I'm going to write about my PTSD in a way that starts off you know, it's just like a sales process. It starts off with building tension and then it brings you down and it makes you all in a bad spot, but then you leave on good momentum positive, like positive upwards, dream building. And I think that's how I'm going to craft this essay. And the other thing, speaking of LSAT, I have figured out a date that I'm going to take the test. April. So the LSAT's offered in January, February, not March, but in April. And when I think about the timelines, so we're already in November. January's too soon. January's too soon because it requires me to register by December. And by then, I need to also have my accommodations request ready. And I just don't think I'll have that ready. I have to reach out to a therapist, probably not get one for PTSD, because if I can get my accommodations under ADHD instead of PTSD, I'd rather that. Just for potential bias, you know? Which is ironic because I just said I'm going to write my essay on PTSD, but that's because I feel confident in my ability to craft the message, control it in a way that walks the tightrope between allowing them to see how much depth and nuance I offer as a person, but also very firmly communicate that my PTSD is not going to be a problem. Because that came up in the podcasts that when you write about heavy things, you do need to be careful and not write it so much or so recently that it occurred that they question your ability to get through the stress of law school, which is a shame, but it is what it is. But back to the point, January is too tight. February, I also believe is too tight because I won't have a whole lot of time to study in November, what with the holidays. And then that leaves just December, really. And then January, not enough time considering I'm still learning new material. On top of that, I need a good solid few months to just do drill practice tests over and over again. There's almost 100 practice tests. So March would be right around the time that I think it starts to make sense. But since they don't offer that, April I think is even better. 
April is plenty of time wherein there is no excuse for me not doing the best I can do. And at that point, I know it's all on me. I like that because then there's no pressure of, oh, I may not do well because it's too soon and that's out of my control. I have everything in my ball court and that gives me a lot of comfort. I have plenty of time to finish this new material, get a new job, and even with the adjustment period of a new job and the stress of a new job, still have plenty of time and runway for me to continue drilling practice test after practice test after test for three months until test day. So with that unknown taken out of the picture, I feel more at ease because that solves two problems, three problems actually, test date, job, and when to start writing my essays because with me taking the test in April, 100% sure that I'm going to have to start writing my essays while I'm still studying, which is fine. At least now I know though. Okay, back to the point of today. Today, what I want to do is talk about what it's actually like to be mentally and emotionally to be a child in an abusive family. The reason I think this is important is because when we talk about trauma and abuse, I feel like those are buzzwords now. Sexual abuse, sexual harassment. Those are all buzzwords that it's kind of like corporate lingo. You say that word itself and you don't really expand on it. So it kind of loses meaning. And that's part of maybe the point because by taking something that could be very disgusting and hard to discuss, you distill it down to a corporate word that is now palatable in corporate conversation. I believe that it's actually a disservice because these are very important things and very negative and gruesome things. And for you to distill it down and take away all the meaning, I think these are things that should be disgusting and should make you feel uncomfortable when you hear about them because they are bad things to have endured and to inflict onto other people. And they shouldn't be taken lightly. So I'll give you an example. When people say, I was molested as a kid, or even in the workplace, I was sexually harassed. Or nowadays you'll hear people say like, they'll just use the word trauma as if let's share our childhood traumas with each other. There's a couple problems I have with that. First of all, if you tell me that you were molested as a kid, I don't know what that means. And this could be a fault of mine because I lack empathy in some ways. And when you say that, that doesn't have any weight on me. But in my opinion, it doesn't have any weight on me because you need to describe it. Paint a picture for me. Tell a story so that I can feel the way you felt so that you can get your point across. If you tell me I was molested, that's such a vague word now, especially for people who didn't go through that. They don't understand it. And so again, it allows you to say a lot of those things and have them all swept under the rug. This is also a problem that came up because that's why I was sent back home because it was very, very hard for me to communicate exactly what was going on in the home that wasn't essentially downplaying it. You need color in between these lines that you're drawing. This might sound weird. I'm not trying to do it in a sick way, but because I think, like I said, these are gruesome, disgusting experiences that everyone should have a gut reaction to. And when you see all these articles, you almost get numb to it because so many people write these things now and just say it in passing. It's like a passing sentence and it shouldn't be. So it becomes so normalized. And that leads me into the other thing that's slightly different, but also a reason I have a problem with these buzzwords is that the overuse of them now. 
the overuse in this concept of all inclusivity where everyone has childhood trauma. No, not everyone has had childhood trauma. Stop that. Or people like Meghan Markle, God, I can't stand her, where she talks slow and pauses for dramatic effect as she scrapes the bucket for any little thing that she can bundle as trauma when it's not really that trauma. It's like maybe a microaggression at best. I remember when the producer yelled at me, Markel, Markel, suck it in. God. (laughs) Okay, so here's my problem with that. I already said not everyone has trauma, so don't act like you do and don't like fluff things up that aren't really trauma. That leads me to my third one, microaggressions. I fully acknowledge that microaggressions suck. I also acknowledge that when you live a lifetime with microaggressions, it does do a little number to you. I will 100% say I tend to be a little bit more fearful of white people and really relieved when they are not rude or racist to me. And I would say that has to do with a lot of the microaggressions you get growing up. A white man walking down the street, passing me, definitely makes me a little more intimidated than a Mexican man. So I do acknowledge that microaggressions do have an impact on your psyche a little bit, a little bit. And I also acknowledge that things done over a prolonged period of time, your whole lifetime, also have more impact than if they happened once. That being said, I do not put these microaggressions of people talking, you know, criticizing me for what I eat or making squinty eyes or always mispronouncing my name and joking about it. Or those disgusting sexual comments where it's like, you want to learn about my culture, but not really because you see me as a geisha, call me a Japanese Barbie, and all this other disgusting stuff I don't want to go into, but happened during my SBS time with CPAs. That is not in the same bucket as childhood trauma. It's just not. And I think that when people put them in the same bucket in this broad umbrella turn of trauma that now everyone uses, because everyone feels like they should be inclusive of everyone being in on this trauma club and not left out from the opportunity to speak their truth, it really takes away a lot of meaning. I think you get my point. What I want to do today is share an analogy that I came up with during my trip to SoCal on what I think is a good way that describes what it's actually like mentally and emotionally that explains why a child is the way they are, defers all power, and still has a bit of people-pleasing aspect to their abusive parent. Because when we do describe child abuse, it's very easy to describe physical abuse and sexual abuse, and the impact of that is acknowledged. No one refutes that, right? I would say those two even though you may not go into detail, those words thankfully still have enough gut reaction on their own of like, wow, that's grotesque and that sucks, right? Emotional abuse is that ugly stepsister third child that's been forgotten that people I don't think give much credit to. I think they're starting to a lot more nowadays than they were 10 years ago and when I was a kid, 100%, especially things with like the Johnny Depp trial. I think that's done a great job because people acknowledge Amber Heard, though, not physically superior to Johnny Depp, was very abusive to him. Yes, she hurt his, she threw things at him and she wouldn't hit him around and stuff. But 
I think most people would agree that the majority of her, the volume and time of her abuse was spent in the emotional category or the verbal category. But underlying even things like physical and sexual abuse is usually emotional abuse, maybe verbal abuse. Let's use them like they're closely intertwined. But that underlying syrup is what I'll call it. It's that sticky stuff that keeps you there, keeps you there physically, keeps you there mentally. It keeps you that small elephant who as a child had this rope tied around his foot so he couldn't escape. And now as a humongous animal and adult elephant, he still is afraid of that rope and he doesn't try to escape. It's that emotional abuse that keeps you like molasses that sticks you there. Because otherwise without it, think about it. Physical abuse could be entirely transactional. All right, time for your weekly beating. Come in, go out, done. Come in next week, go out, done. And if someone maintains a healthy psyche, they could easily walk out if they are an adult in an abusive relationship, or they could easily walk out when they're 18. But that's not the case. It's because of that underlying emotional abuse that sucks them in. And I think it's hard for people to understand, at least again, this might be me, this might be my fault because I lack empathy sometimes, but I feel like it's hard for me to understand sometimes when, why someone would stay there because it's so obvious for me as a third person that, well, that person's being toxic, you should just leave. And yes, we might read about intimate partner violence and people might try to explain that they felt trapped, but I just don't feel like they do a good enough job of painting a clear enough picture for people to understand what it feels like to be trapped, what it feels like to live in a weird totalitarian regime type of environment, how it changes the way you think. Why now suddenly it's okay for you to rat on your siblings and watch them get beat, and your first thought is, I'm glad it's not me. Or how a mom can watch her children get beat and not really do anything. That's what I want to try to describe today. Okay, so we're going to start with this. Have you seen the movie, not movie, TV show Squid Games? You remember that one scene where the main character is solicited by Gong Yu, that's the actor, to play a game in the subway system. Hey, excuse me, sir, do you want to play a game with me? And if I win, I slap you. If you win, you slap me. We're going to use that scenario, except with a couple key changes, but you can kind of use that as your base sketch of what I'm trying to describe here. A couple key differences. Instead of the main character, I want you to picture a six-year-old. You could picture yourself, if that's helpful, or picture a neighbor, a niece or a nephew, your friend's kid, some six-year-old who, when you see them and think of them, you really truly do see them as a, as a child. An innocent child who's vulnerable, doesn't have a whole lot of defenses, and yeah, just an innocent, good-natured little child. And then as far as the man who solicited the game, Gong Yu was probably around 40. He's an attractive-looking man. Don't think of him. Replace him with a middle-aged, like 50-year-old, kind of ugly, low socioeconomic status man, the kind that would patron 7-Eleven at 11 or 2 a.m. at night, that kind. Not quite homeless, but not prim and proper and suited up like the way they were in Squid Games. Okay, so let's set the scene. So 
the adult asks the kid, do you want to play a game? Rock, paper, scissors. I win. I get to slap you. You win. You get to slap me. So they start playing. And the first couple rounds is a draw. No one wins, so they keep playing. Typical, normal pace of when you first start playing rock, paper, scissors. And then the child draws scissors and the adult draws paper. So the child wins. Child looks at it. He's a little excited. Ah! But before he can do anything, as soon as he looks up, the adult slaps him. The adult slaps him so quickly. Not super hard yet, but quickly. And the kid grabs his cheek. Why'd you hit me? The man proceeds to explain. Well, you see, it turns out paper, if you fold it over itself many, many times, it actually becomes very thick and very hard. So the average scissor would not be able to cut it. In fact, the average scissor might actually break trying to cut paper that thick. So actually, paper does beat scissors. You listening to this as an adult should be thinking, oh, he's gaslighting him. That's exactly what he's doing. Because he's making up some bullshit explanation on why paper actually beats scissors. But again, we're thinking about the kid. Think about that innocent niece or nephew or neighbor down the street who spends his time playing outside. That kid trusts the adult still, and he's like, Oh, okay, that that makes sense. And in his head, he's trying to adjust to that new rule. He's trying to think, okay, it turns out scissors actually doesn't beat paper. Paper beats scissors. Okay, let me think about that. And so they play a couple more games. And this time, the kid draws paper. And the adult draws scissors. And the kid's excited. But then he gets slapped again. This time, it was harder. And the kid again, why'd you slap me? Well, you see, actually, if you look at it, Scissors beats paper because look at your fingers. Your fingers are separate. When you held out your paper, you didn't hold them together like that. You held them separate. So each finger represents a little piece of paper, not a folded piece of paper. So it's weaker. So scissors does beat paper the way you held out your hand. Okay, that makes sense. So, all right. So that means it's different if I hold it out together versus I hold it out separately. The kid jots that down in his head. And in this, there's a level of deference. He still believes in what he's saying because he trusts him. There's a level of, you are an adult. So even though this is catching me off guard, I trust that you know what you're doing. I trust that you're right. There's got to be some rhyme or reason to this because you are the adult. And so they keep playing. And at this point in the TV show, you remember the game starts picking up the pace. So I want you to imagine that. Every time the adult wins or every time the child should win, he gets slapped. He gets slapped harder and harder and faster. His face is turning red and swollen. And at this point, the kid is starting to get a little frustrated. Not because he's not winning. Because he's a kid. Like, he's an innocent kid. It's more about, why am I getting this so wrong? Why? I, I'm trying so hard to imagine and accommodate all these rules that you're telling me and learn them properly. And... That's why every time I stick out my hand, I'm thinking about all the new rules you've given me. And for some reason, I'm still getting it wrong. For some reason, I'm still getting hit. And it hurts. And I don't want to get hit anymore. But I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I'm trying really, really hard here. And so the kid's getting frustrated. Every time he brings out his hand, there's that now high alert anxiety of, Right before he brings out, what should I bring out? And he runs through all the rules in his head. And he brings out rock this time. 
and his breath is held for a split second before deliberation. Either he gets slapped or he happens to skate on by this time. And as he continues to play, he tries harder and harder. He's on high alert, yet he continues to get hit and it hurts more and more and he's starting to cry. And he's crying out of hopelessness. And it's not one of those big wails that a two-year-old might do, like a tantrum. This is one of those cries where you're shameful to be crying and you want to hide the fact that you're crying. It's one of those... (laughs) Those kind of cries. Because you're ashamed that you're crying. Because it shows that you broke. When it's just a game, it's just rock, paper, scissors. Why are you being so weak and so stupid, a crybaby, just because you're not smart enough at this game? And as this child continues to cry and he's bringing out his rock, paper, scissors through all his sniffles, he continues to get smacked in the face. And you look up and the adult here is smiling. He's smiling. He's even laughing. He's laughing maniacally. The adult is having a field day, having the best day of his life, just smacking the shit out of this kid who is crying just enjoying the control he has over him. This is the best way I can explain the dynamic. Because hopefully you can see that the adult here, he's just a sick bully. Because remember, this man is 50 years old. This child is 6 years old. That is the best way that I can explain the dynamic that I experienced growing up. You can see how that would mess with a child's psyche, right? Because imagine the stress that that child is feeling during that 20 minutes. Except instead of one 20-minute game, you stretch that over 16 years. For every minute of my waking life, and every minute that I couldn't fall asleep. Seven days a week, 16 years. You can see why now I am the way I am. You can see why now I'm incredibly perfectionist. I have such high standards of myself to do everything perfectly in every aspect of my life. Because I would get punished for everything and anything, and I could never understand what landmine I had just stepped on. And it started to drive me nuts. And again, not in a angry way, more in like a hopeless agony way, because I just couldn't understand what I was doing wrong, because I was truly, truly trying, trying to learn the rules of the game, trying to understand and accommodate every, you know, mistake that I'd made in the past to figure out what I needed to avoid doing in the future. And I believe that this itself explains why I am the way I am why I am such a hardcore perfectionist and expect so much of myself to be able to balance everything on my plate at the same time, work myself into the dirt to be perfect in everything I am balancing. And of course, those extremely high expectations naturally cause me to have high expectations of others because I hold myself to even higher standards. You can understand why perfectionism, anxiety, high alert, anxiety with relationships, all of that bubbles up into essentially PTSD. And now that 
you have this understanding and I have this understanding, I think of many instances in my life that now make so much sense now. There was one time my dad got mad that we didn't sweep the floor. And I do want to double click on the word sweep. This was in the 2000s. And (laughs) we didn't even have a vacuum. We were that poor. And I guess we didn't sweep the stairs. And so he got mad and yelled at us to sweep the floor with our faces. And again, surface level, this seems fairly benign, right? It's not violent. He's not beating us. But it is strange. And that's where I want to zoom out and just put into perspective again that, no, it's not violent. I 100% defer physical abuse, sexual abuse. It's a different category because it's more violent. But in this particular instance, we're not talking about ranking violence. We're talking about the question of, does it fuck with someone long-term? Does it cause a long-term change in a person's psyche to go through this? And actually, let me edit that. Not a person's psyche, a child's psyche to grow up in an environment like this. And child abuse, the definition too is, does it cause physical or an emotional harm? That goes back to, will it affect the psyche long-term? And I do believe also my dad knew to turn down the physical abuse because he knew that there was always a threat that we could go to the police. That started even before I was born. My mom would take photos of the bruises he gave her. And I believe that that was a reason he knew to pivot away from that and use other methods of getting his fix of controlling and bullying us in verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and other means of control. It was less efficient. And that's why it took longer and more time out of my day and his day. But maybe it was potentially also more satisfying. I don't know because it was a slow burn. I'm not sure. But going back to this picture and this situation. So there's four kids. He screams at us to now sweep the floor with our faces. And so we did. And we all had different ways of going about it. My brother... My brother hit himself with a brick for whatever fucking reason we had a brick inside of our house like we lived in a ratchet house we had a brick inside he grabbed a nearby brick and he started hitting himself with a brick he was on the top stair and then I believe my sister was next and I remember judging her because I looked at the way she was doing it, and she was being all dainty with her face. She was not really sweeping the floor. She was dusting the webs. That's what it looked like. She was just, you know, closing her eyes and just dusting the webs in the corners really lightly. It didn't really feel like she was mashing her face into the ground, and I judged her for that. In my head, I was like, this bitch trying to just skate on by, I'll show him. I'll show him what I'm willing to do. So I took my head and I, how do I say, I'm on my knees on the stairs. So I'm horizontally, I'm a kid, I'm a kid. So I fit onto the stairs and I bend my head. So my head is touching the floor. So it's basically the top of my forehead where my scalp is. And so that's my, uh, all my weight is going onto that and my knees. And I am just grinding my forehead and scalp into the floor, front and back, front and back, front and back. And I'm doing it extremely hard and really loud and very fast. Because in my head, I thought, I'm going to show him how well I can do this. 
I wanted his approval. And this is the fucked up thing that I'm trying hard to explain here. It's not that I wanted his love approval. It wasn't that. It was more that it was like a sick sacrifice. Because in this picture, let's paint the picture again. You have four kids on different steps. I'm third, and I think my little brother was after me, and he basically imitated me. And my dad is standing there just watching all of us in silence with his hands on his hips for a good, like, I don't remember how long, maybe 10 minutes, but 10 minutes of back and forth of, you know, me basically (laughs) rubbing my forehead off. And he's just watching it. So there's this, this element of sacrifice of, so in my head, he's this God and we're sacrificing. And I'm asking him if my sacrifice of a piece of my scalp is enough because I'm going to do this and you're going to see how hard I'm grinding my head into the ground. Oh, and one thing I also want to point out, uh, we didn't have like smooth hardwood floor like normal people did. So that's another thing I want to just mention some more clarity, because if we had nice floors, my skin probably wouldn't have come off. We had unfinished floors because what happened was my, we used to have carpet and my dad took the carpet off. So underneath was this rough, unfinished wood. And so it it kind of felt like light sandpaper. Uh, And so in my head, I'm thinking, you're going to see me do this so well, so hard. I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate to living up to your punishment. And you're going to see that I did this so well that I no longer have any more hair, any more skin, and I'm starting to bleed at the top of my head. Is that going to be enough, God? That's what it kind of felt like. Is that going to be enough? Are you going to see this and approve of this and maybe buy me some slack in the future? This mentality is why when I looked at my sister, I had this sense of competition and judgment because in comparison, she wasn't working as hard. And I was striving to get some sort of approval from working hard. I'm trying to explain that there's this really strange dynamic of it's not simple to say, oh, I hate my dad. I did hate my dad. But there's also this element of we're all racing for his approval because his approval means limited resources in rations. Rations? future rations of maybe a little bit of mercy. So the more I beat myself up now for you, the more I get your approval of how much I hurt myself, maybe it'll buy me some more time down the line. And that was the resource we were pining for and competing for. And that's why the four of us on the floor, sweeping the floor with our faces, now became a competition a competition to win the judge, this God's approval, who's this sick 50-year-old man just standing there watching as his four kids try to compete for his approval by mashing either their faces into bricks or into the floor. I hope I did a good job explaining that. I will say, to this day, I'm still quite insecure about a potential bald spot in the top center of my head. I'm sure my hair grew up back by then, but I always feel like if it starts to get a little thin there, it brings me back to that time. And when I think about this in terms of simple terms of just bullying, and he enjoys it for whatever reason, it makes a lot of sense, the different things that I went through in my life. It explains why he would threaten to beat the shit out of me if I ever got sick. And I'll paint you a picture of that. I think I was 
just, I was passing by him in the living room and I must have sneezed or coughed, something like that. And he stopped in his tracks and he turned to me. And he then reached out and grabbed my collar. I was wearing a t-shirt and he grabbed my collar with, you know, his, he clenched his hands with, you could tell there was like anger in it. And he started tugging me towards him. But as protocol has it, I was frozen like a statue. So him tugging my collar wasn't enough to make me go towards him. So he had to keep tugging. So he kept tugging harder and harder and stretching my collar so much. And as the collar became so stretched that it was now loose, he would start wrapping it around his fingers. So wrapping it around his knuckles until his fist was tight against my neck. He'd gone over his knuckles a couple times. And now his fist was up against my neck. His knuckles were pressed in and my collar was tight around my neck. And he got into my face and he said closely, if you get sick, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. And I'm five foot two now. So for most of my life, I was either three foot or four foot. So I was probably four foot then. And I just stood there emotionless and looked up and said, okay. Again, a 50 something year old man picking on a kid who I believe was under 10 at that time, four foot something. He just really liked bullying us. Thank you for listening. Hope that was helpful. Bye.